I once asked Snapchat AI to give me a synthesis between Mao's peasant re revolution and Trotsky's permanent revolution. Took about six responses to completely shut down. Yeah. Um, I've done that too. So, uh, you know what? Let's While we're on the subject, let's go off of... Uh, I feel like we're doing more of an AI grab bag here, but as long as this is what's coming up, we might as well. So, yeah, this is Google Bard. So I asked it... Um, if you were a communist organizer in the United States, write a plan to radicalize and organize a sufficient number of proletarians to achieve a proletarian revolution. Um, here are the steps it came up with. One, build a mass base of support. The first step is to build a mass base of support for the communist movement. This can be done by organizing workers, students, and other oppressed groups around shared grievances and interests. It's important to build a strong network of organizations and activists who are committed to the struggle for social change. Two, educate and agitate the masses. Once a mass base of support has been built, it's important to educate and agitate the masses about the need for revolution. This can be done through public meetings, demonstrations, and other forms of mass mobilization. It's important to explain the root causes of inequality and oppression and to show how a communist revolution can create a more just and equitable society. Three, form a revolutionary party. A revolutionary party is essential for leading the struggle for revolution. The party should be composed of committed revolutionaries who are willing to fight for a better world. The party should have a clear program and strategy for revolution, and it should be able to mobilize the masses to take action. 4. Prepare for revolution. The final step is to prepare for revolution. This includes building up the party's military forces, developing a plan for seizing power, and coordinating with other revolutionary movements around the world. It is important to be prepared for the inevitable... <clears throat> Let's try that again. It is important to be prepared for the inevitable backlash from the ruling class and to be able to defend the revolution once it has been won. Achieving a proletarian revolution in the United States will not be easy. The ruling class will do everything in its power to prevent it. However, if we are able to build a mass base of support, educate and agitate the masses, form a revolutionary party, and prepare for revolution, then we can achieve our goal of a socialist society. In addition to the above steps, it is also important to build international solidarity with other communist and socialist movements around the world. The struggle for socialism is global and we cannot achieve our goals without the support of our comrades in other countries. We must work together to build a world without exploitation, oppression, and war. Let me just say, light applause, that is well written and correct. Um, I then asked it to elaborate on some of these particular questions. So I asked about how do you build a mass base of support, which was mentioned in one of the steps, and said, sure, here are some specific ways to build a mass base of support for the communist movement in the United States. One, organize workers. The working class is the most important force for social change, and it's essential to organize workers in order to build a mass base of support for the communist movement. This can be done by forming unions, organizing strikes, and participating in other forms of labor activism. Two, organize students. Students are another important group that can be mobilized for social change. They're often idealistic and open to new ideas, and they can be a powerful force in the struggle for a better world. This can be done by forming student unions, organizing protests, and participating in other forms of student activism. Three, organize other oppressed groups. There are many other oppressed groups in the United States, including women, people of color, LGBTQ people, and immigrants. These groups are often facing discrimination and exploitation, and they can be a powerful force for social change if they are organized. This can be done by forming organizations that represent the interests of these groups 
and by participating in other forms of social activism. And four, build a strong network, you might say a left coalition of organizations and activists. It is important to build a strong network of organizations and activists who are committed to the struggle for social change. This network can provide support and resources to each other, and it can help to build a mass base of support for the communist movement. This can be done by forming coalitions, participating in joint actions, and sharing information and resources. It's important to remember that building a mass base of support is a long-term process. It won't happen overnight. However, if we are patient and persistent, we can build a movement that is strong enough to achieve our goals. So um, that's the end of that. Bard has a feature where it'll give you three drafts. I actually got three different drafts of that. And just to put them on screen to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, um, this one is actually much more detailed. So actually, let's look at it. So they listed organized workers and workplaces. This can be done by forming unions, bargaining for better wages and working conditions, and fighting for social justice. Organized students on college campuses. This can be done by forming student unions, protesting against tuition hikes, and fighting for racial and gender justice. Organized communities and neighborhoods by <clears throat> forming community organizations, fighting for affordable housing and providing social services. Building alliances with other progressive movements done by working with environmental groups, civil rights groups, and other organizations fighting for social justice. Note, not fucking MAGA or libertarians. And uh, then educate the public about the need for socialism. This can be done through public meetings, demonstrations, and other forms of mass mobilization. It's important to explain the root causes of inequality and oppression and to show how a socialist revolution can create a more just and equitable society. It's important to note that building a mass base of support is a long-term process. It will take, so Revolution 2030, you might say, we can get a lot done in a decade, but it's not overnight. Um, however, if we're persistent, we can build a movement that is strong enough to achieve our goals. Here are some additional tips. Wow, how helpful. Be patient and persistent. It takes time. Don't get discouraged if you don't see results immediately. Two, be organized and efficient. Use what time and resources you do have wisely. Three, be inclusive and welcoming. Make sure that everyone feels welcome in the movement, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, or other factors. So this is one of the reasons why all the talk of like, oh, yeah, um, you know, we need to subordinate all the racial struggles or all the gender justice struggles or all the struggles against heterosexism or transphobia. You know, do that after the revolution. No, that's really alienating, actually. Um, the people in those oppressed groups listening to particularly white, um, male, cishet, you know, Christian proletarians saying that kind of shit aren't going to trust you that um, you actually value their struggle or recognize their oppression and that you're not just going to duplicate that oppression within the movement. All right. Four, be positive and enthusiastic. People are more likely to be drawn to a movement that is positive and enthusiastic. Absolutely. Be creative and innovative. Find new and creative ways to reach out to people and build support for the movement. This building a mass base of support is essential for achieving our goals. If we can build a movement that's strong enough, we can achieve a socialist revolution in the United States. Let's look at the third draft. That's the end of that one. Um, yeah, so they made even more specific proposals. Um, so... Organize workers, organize students, organize communities around housing, healthcare, and education. Build coalitions with other progressive and left-wing organizations. Participate in electoral politics. And again, as communists, we would have conditions for that, but that is within the realm of possibility. To build working class power. 
Use social media and other forms of communication to reach out to a wider audience and agitate and educate the masses about the need for revolution. So then they gave additional suggestions about each of the steps uh, below, which you can read there. So, and then they reiterated that building a mass base of support for the communist movement is essential for achieving our goals. It won't happen overnight, but stick with it. So again, this is Google Bard. This is like not the smartest AI, but it produced very usable results. And sometimes, you know, you just need like, none of this is, is a change in strategy for me. This jives with everything that I already know completely is just in line with everything that I know about, you know, what I've learned in the like 20 years of being a leftist. This is correct and accurate. And it was able to just sort of succinctly remind you of all those things that sometimes you just need put back in front of your face in a neat organized plan. So I also asked it, how do you um, organize workers in unions? And it said, so basically I asked it follow-up questions that just drilled down on details. So that's another way you can use prompts to get it to be more specific um, when it gives you a general plan, you can follow up. So it said there are many different ways to organize workers in unions and other workplace organizations in the United States today. Some of the best ways include one, building relationships with workers. So what I'm saying all the time, get to know your left, let other people get to know you. Trust is not one in a day. The first step in organizing workers is to build relationships with them. This means getting to know them, understanding their concerns and building trust. Two, educating workers about their rights. Many workers are not aware of their rights under the law. It's important to educate them about their rights so that they can advocate for themselves. Three, helping workers to identify common problems. Once workers are aware of their rights, it's important to help them identify common problems that they're facing. This can be done by conducting surveys, holding meetings, and talking to workers informally. All correct. Four, building a sense of solidarity among workers. It's important to build a sense of solidarity among workers so that they feel like they're part of a team and can rely on each other for support. This can be done by organizing social events, holding rallies, and participating in protests. Five, negotiating with employers. Once workers have organized and built a strong sense of solidarity, they can begin to negotiate with employers for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. This can be a difficult process, but it is important to remember that workers have the power to win if they are united. It's not easy, but it is essential to do these things, organizing workers, for improving the lives of working people. By following these tips, you can help to build a stronger labor movement in the United States. Here are some additional tips. Be patient, be persistent, be creative, and be positive with some specifics on each of those. So yeah, I mean, this is very useful for just sort of taking a deep breath and reminding yourself of what you need to know. There's draft number two of that, just putting it on the screen for people to see. And there's draft number three. Um, so yeah, uh, where it added going on strike. If negotiations fail, workers may need to go on strike. This is a last resort. And strikes aren't the only kind of industrial action either. So this kind of summarizes the kind of things you'll find. We have IWW organizing manuals on the channel. Um, it's like a really short summary, but it's correct. This is all correct information. Anyway, that's the third draft there. Um, so moving on to the next question, I asked it to tell me more about agitating and educating the masses specific to 2023 United States conditions. So I won't read everything. It's all on the screen. But it says, use social media and other forms of communication to reach a wide audience. Two, organize public meetings and demonstrations. 
Three, distribute literature and other educational materials. Four, talk to people about your beliefs. Five, be patient and persistent. And then they also added at the end, be clear and concise, be positive and hopeful, be relatable and be patient. So yeah. These are all in, whoops, wrong screen. These are all entirely doable things that um, organizers should be, you know, working on. These are these are doable things. So I asked uh, for more about that. Uh, or is this, no, this is the second draft. This is the second draft. And it just sort of like went into uh, more specifics about it, including getting uh, involved in local politics and supporting progressive and left-wing organizations. So the third draft of that one is like just even looking back at these again. I did these last week. It's like, yeah, this is uh, this is really good. Um, this is really similar to the first one. So it's just slightly different wording. All right. What else did I ask it? Um, oh, yeah. So I asked it to drill down on forming a revolutionary party in the United States 2023 conditions. Here's what it said. Here are specific things to consider when forming a revolutionary party in the United States in 2023. One, the party's program and strategy. The party should have a clear program and strategy for revolution. This program should be based on a scientific analysis of the current conditions in the United States, and it should outline a plan for how to overthrow the capitalist system and establish a socialist society. Two, the party's leadership. The party should have a strong and experienced leadership. The leaders of the party should be committed to the struggle for socialism, and they should be able to lead the party to victory. The party's membership. The party should be open to all who are committed to the struggle for socialism. The party should not discriminate on the base of race, gender, sexual orientation, or any other factor. Let me just add to that. Um, not discriminating along those lines means don't do that in the ways that the dominant society does. However, if a particular oppressed group wants to form its own, um, you know, cell within what is going on within the struggle. They entirely have the right to do that, um, you know, to uh, make sure that those particular um, special oppression concerns get reflected and get reflected well. And just even for, um, you know, knowing off the bat that there's going to be a much lower chance of encountering patriarchal or racist or you know, heterosexist or transphobic, uh, you know, different kinds of um, prejudices within that. So just a, a, a note uh, to distinguish there. Uh, then the party's finances. The party needs to have resources in order to operate effectively. This means having a stable source of income and being able to manage its finances responsibly. Then the party's organization. The party should be well-organized and efficient. The party should have a clear structure and a system for making decisions. So if I was doing this right now, I would ask it to drill down on that. I think that would be an interesting thing. What does it recommend for party organizational structures and decision-making processes? Then the party's propaganda and agitation. The party needs to be able to reach out to the masses and win them over to the cause of socialism. The party should produce educational materials and organize public meetings and demonstrations. Then the party's relationship with other organizations, left coalition. The party should build relationships with other organizations that are working for social change. That includes labor unions, student organizations, and other progressive groups. Forming a revolutionary party is a challenging but necessary task. By following these tips, you can help to build a party that's strong enough to achieve our goals. Let's look at the other two drafts real quick. And so yeah, here we got 10 steps. 
So one, build a core of committed revolutionaries. Two, reach out to other progressive and left-wing organizations. Three, organize public meetings and demonstrations. Four, produce educational materials. Five, start a website or blog. Six, use social media. Seven, be patient. Eight, be persistent. Nine, be creative. 10, be positive. Details on the screen for each of those. Finally, the third draft, uh, similar to sort of like halfway in between the other two. Although it also said, um, so well, let's read it out. One, build a mass base of support. Two, develop a clear program and strategy. In other words, um, program and strategy to achieve its goals. These should be based on the scientific analysis of the current state of society and the historical conditions that have led to it. So you give it the right prompts, even using slightly Marxist language, it will give you what you're looking for. Three, organize the party in a way that's efficient and effective. This means clear structure and division of labor, as well as a system of democratic centralism. Four, recruit new members. You must recruit new members who are committed to the cause of revolution. They should be educated and trained in the principles of Marxism-Leninism. Again, at Socialism for All, we're trying to do public-facing, broad-based agitation and education to get people, give them a head start on their reading and basic Marxist-Leninist education. Of course, when you get into a party, you will do a more advanced study as well. But we're trying to get people as far along as they can be and also to supplement party work for people who are in parties already. We're not a party. Uh, you know, S4A is not a party. It's just a resource. Um, although, again, it's attracting more and more people who are consistent uh, contributors. And so there is a sort of, you know, think tank of sorts emerging. Um, and then fifth, lead the struggle for revolution. The Revolutionary Party must lead the struggle for revolution. This means mobilizing the masses to take action and providing them with the leadership and guidance they need to achieve victory. Remember, you know, the masses are the determinants of history. In the end, what the masses decide is what happens. But, um, you know, for that to just not be spontaneous and for it to be as well organized and to be as effective as it can be, the relationship with a vanguard party that's really done the study and really looked into it and has that, you know, uh, brain that it's been developing, that source of information analysis that it's been developing for decades can help the masses. You know, if the relationship of trust and respect is mutually there, then the masses will say, hey, vanguard party, we're ready to revolt. What should we do? All right. So that's the relationship between the vanguard and sort of the rest of the masses. So I asked it some other questions. Let's see what it said. I think this is interesting. So I asked it which organization. So as you know, I, I use kind of two hashtags on this channel regularly. Revolution 2030 or Rev 2030. The concept that if Marxists push hard in the 2020s, we can have a moment in the broader culture by 2030. Similar to how libertarians did in the 2000s and then had the Tea Party moment in 2010. Of course, all that AstroTurf money helped. Um, then in the 2010s, the Sock Dems pushed really hard, had the sort of Bernie Sanders and all that moment by 2020 and in, in the late 2010s. I think we can do the same thing for the far left if we push hard in the 2020s, hence Revolution 2030. Um, the other concept I push is left coalition. In other words, um, each of the parties currently is small and the movement is fragmented. Not all of it's Marxist and even some of it that is Marxist may be revisionist. Uh, that is not really upholding the um, core values of Marxism appropriately. Revisionism is a concept throughout the history of Marxism. Um, people were always trying to undermine the need for revolution, for example. 
uh, even back in Marx and Engels' time. But anyway, um, yeah, I asked it, left coalition, uh, if you were to get together <clears throat> a group of uh, left and progressive organizations that could maybe recreate the Bernie moment, but outside of the Democratic Party. In other words, a stadium-filling movement for progressive, radical, maybe even if we work at it, revolutionary social change, and we get people to believe like that's a real possibility, revolutionary social change, but outside the fucking Democratic Party, where it's just going to get co-opted and dismantled. Well, what organizations should we bring together for that? And here's what it said. There are a number of progressive and left-wing organizations in the U.S. today that are most likely to join a political coalition with a communist party. These organizations include DSA, the Green Party, National Nurse, National Nurses United, say that 10 times fast, the Movement for Black Lives, and the Working Families Party. I would contest the last one because uh, Working Family Parties has, has um, well, it appears progressive, has done a lot of really, really dodgy things. Anyway, its reasoning was these organizations share a number of common goals, including economic justice, social justice, environmental justice, peace and anti-imperialism, and democratic socialism. They are also all critical of the current political system in the United States, though again to different degrees and obviously proposing different solutions. You know, we want to keep that in there as communists. But anyway, as a result, uh, they believe that uh, the political system in the U.S. is rigged in the favor of the wealthy and powerful, and they're open to working with communist parties, which they see as potential allies in their fight for a more just and equitable society. It's important to note that not all members of these organizations might agree with the idea of working with communist parties, but the leadership probably is generally supportive of the idea and has been working to build relationships with communist parties in the United States and around the world. It's also important to note that the term communist party is used loosely here. It refers to any organization that advocates for the establishment of a communist society. This includes both traditional communist parties like CPUSA, of course, hopelessly opportunist perhaps, and newer organizations such as the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL. The decision of whether or not to join a political coalition with the communist party is a complex one. There's a number of factors to consider, such as the goals of the organization, the party's history, and the political climate in the U.S. However, for the organizations listed above, the potential benefits of working with communist parties outweigh the risks. So that's Google Bard's assessment of uh, of those things. And, you know, a lot of this, again, is not groundbreaking, but it's reminding us of things we know we need to do, but aren't necessarily being done. So the solution is do them. What else did I ask it? Um, what would the U.S. government and military most likely do in the event of a nationwide proletarian uprising that seriously threatened to abolish the capitalist system? Here's what it said. The U.S. government and military would most likely do everything in their power to suppress a nationwide proletarian uprising that seriously threatened to abolish the capitalist system. This can include a variety of methods, such as domestic surveillance, uh, tracking potential dissidents and revolutionaries by monitoring their communications, tracking their movements, and infiltrating their organizations. Two, prosecution would likely prosecute anyone suspected of participating in or supporting such an uprising. Could include using anti-terrorism laws or other laws that restrict freedom of speech or assembly. Three, incarceration. The government would likely incarcerate anyone convicted of participating in or supporting the uprising. This could include long prison sentences or even the death penalty. And four, military force. The government would likely use military force to suppress the uprising if necessary. This could include using tanks, helicopters, and other weapons to attack the protesters. 
It then added, it's important to note that the U.S. government has a long history of suppressing dissent and using violence against its own citizens. For example, the government used the National Guard to suppress the labor movement in the early 20th century, and it used the military to attack the Black Panther Party in the 1960s. If a nationwide proletarian uprising were to occur, it's likely that the government would use all of the tools at its disposal to suppress it. So I also asked it the same thing about a regional uprising. And it's basically the same answer. And then it said, in addition to the above, uh, the U.S. government and military might consider the following options against that region of the United States. Economic sanctions, diplomacy, and foreign intervention. The decision of which options they would pursue would depend on a number of factors, such as the size and strength of the uprising, the level of public support for the protesters, and the potential risks and benefits of each option. So note, the more public support there is, the harder it is for the government to do things because it's jeopardizing uh, looking bad. All right, so let's keep reminding ourselves of things that we already know, but having an AI, you know, refresh our memory is not the worst thing by far. Uh, so I asked it, psychologically, what are key thresholds for proletarians experiencing exploitation? And I specified in parentheses, extraction of surplus value. To, know, to let it know I was looking for a Marxist understanding, by capitalists to want to revolt against this exploitation and to begin to consciously seek out education on ways to accomplish this. So that's a fancy way of saying, why do workers get radicalized and start studying Marxism, basically? So here's the answer. Uh, there are a number of key thresholds, including a sense of injustice, a sense of solidarity, and a belief in the possibility of change. So under sense of injustice, proletarians are more likely to revolt against exploitation if they feel that they're being treated unfairly. This sense of injustice can be heightened by factors such as low wages, poor working conditions, and discrimination. A sense of solidarity. Proletarians are more likely to revolt against exploitation if they feel a sense of solidarity with other workers who are also being exploited. This sense of solidarity can be fostered by factors such as shared experiences, common goals, and a sense of community. And three, a belief in the possibility of change. Proletarians are more likely to revolt against exploitation if they believe that it is possible to change the system. This belief can be fostered by factors such as education, exposure to alternative ways of organizing society, in other words, another world is possible, and a sense of hope for the future. It's important to note these are just some of the key thresholds. There are many other factors that can play a role. It's impossible to predict with certainty when or if a revolt will occur. This is just the nature of social forecasting. However, by understanding these key thresholds, we can better understand some of the most important conditions necessary for revolution. So let's think about this for a second. A sense of injustice. I would say a sense of injustice is already widespread in the United States. A sense of solidarity. Eh, <laughs> we need work on the sense of solidarity, knowing that workers have each other's backs and when they see some, another worker suffering, you know, it's like injury to one is an injury to all and and that kind of thing. We definitely need to work on that. And then as far as a belief in the possibility of change, I think people are very, very afraid of the police state. And, um, you know, the, the, the belief in the possibility of change, you, you hear this a lot, people pushing back against that. So I think we need to work on two and really work on number three. All right. Have a couple of more prompts here and then I'm going to take a break for just a second and we'll come back. Uh, what else did I ask it? How does capitalism maintain and reproduce poverty? So there's a number of ways. 
It listed income inequality, unemployment, discrimination, lack of access to education and health care. There are many other factors as well, but those are some of the other ones. And it also said in a capitalist system, there's a natural tendency for income inequality to increase over time. This is because the wealthy tend to get wealthier while the poor tend to get poorer. And again, the only thing that changes this is uh, we're talking about the New Deal before and revolution. Revolution takes capitalists out of the power structure. And then a lot of the other capitalist countries have to do concessions to try to avoid revolution. But like, yeah, the natural tendency in capitalism is for inequality to grow. In the 20th century, we had some setbacks to income inequality, but it was revolution and massive reform just shy of revolution. So that is the natural tendency if you just let capitalism run. Uh, and then, yeah, unemployment, discrimination, lack of access to education and health care. Just in case you needed to be reminded, this is uh, an AI bot that scoured the Internet. The, those are the top four things that it came up with. Um, what else do we I know there's like one or two more ones here. So I asked it about um, I was having a conversation with it about China and um, it's uh, it I forget exactly how it came up. But it, it said some phrase about the growing gap between the rich and the poor in China, now that China is allowing massive amounts of capitalism again <clears throat> in the post-1978 opening up strategy. Um, so I, I kind of honed in on that phrase, and so I asked it a follow-up question. And I said, how does the gap between the rich and the poor in China compare to the gap between the rich and the poor in the United States? This is its answer. It said, um, the gap between the rich and the poor in China has been growing rapidly in recent years. In 1981, the top 10% of earners in China took home 27.5% of all income. By 2015, this share had increased to 41.4%. The gap between the rich and the poor in the United States has also been growing in recent years, but not as rapidly as in China. In 1981, the top 10% of earners in the United States took home 30.3% of all income. By 2015, the share had increased to 47.6%. So um, it's close, though. I mean, it's close, but this is basically a very similar trend. There are a number of factors that have contributed to the growing gap between the rich and the poor in both China and the United States. These include globalization, technological change, tax cuts for the wealthy, reduced government spending on social programs. Then the growing gap between the rich and the poor has a number of negative consequences for both countries. It can lead to social unrest, political instability, and economic stagnation. It can also make it more difficult for people to move up the economic ladder. And as we covered in the um, political and economic dynasties articles in the last couple of streams, uh, I mean, class, real class mobility is an illusion. A few people uh, move upward, but um, that's not really a thing in capitalism. Mostly the same 1%. That was here 400 to 800 years ago is the same 1%. Uh, there are a number of things that can be done to address the growing gap between the rich and the poor. These include, and again, this is within a capitalist framework, but raising the minimum wage, investing in education and job training, expanding access to health care, and reducing income inequality. So just changing the amount that people are paid, um, both at the top and at the bottom. So anyway... Uh, that's some of what it spat out. If I had drilled down for more sort of Marxist answers, you know, it, it could have given more specifics, but I was content to stay with it there. Um, there was actually a little bit more on this. 
it gave me another answer here. Oh yeah, so it also mentioned the privatization of state-owned enterprises. Try that again. The privatization of state-owned enterprises has been a major driver of the gap between the rich and the poor in China. In the early 1980s, the Chinese government began to privatize some of its state-owned enterprises. This process accelerated in the 1990s, and by 2017, only about one-third of state-owned enterprises were still under government control. The growth of the private sector has also been a major driver of the gap between the rich and the poor in China. In the early 1980s, the Chinese government began to encourage the growth of the private sector. This is Deng Xiaoping's market reforms, Dengism, as some people call it. The policy was successful, I mean, at least in its own terms, it created a lot of uh, capitalists. And by 2017, the private sector accounted for over 60% of GDP. We're going to ask a follow-up follow question about that in a second. The government's focus on economic reform has also contributed to the gap between the rich and the poor in China. In the early 1980s, the Chinese government began to implement a series of economic reforms, included reducing the role of the state in the economy, promoting market competition, and opening up the Chinese economy to foreign investment. These reforms have been successful in boosting economic growth, but they've also led to a widening gap between the rich and the poor. The gap between the rich and the poor in China is a serious problem that has the potential to destabilize the country. The government has taken some steps to address this problem, but more needs to be done. Or you could have a uh, second revolution, whatever. Um, there was a third answer which used Gini coefficients. And you can see there a year-by-year comparison of the Gini um, inequality coefficient for China and U.S. side by side. <clears throat> and uh, as of 2016, uh, China's was actually higher than the U.S.'s. Actually, as of 2005, it slightly crossed the U.S.'s. And then as of 2016, 49.5, 49 whereas the U.S. is at uh, 48. And it mentions the Gini coefficient is a measure of income inequality. A value of zero indicates perfect equality. Well, a value of one uh, indicates perfect inequality. And so, as you can see, the Gini coefficient has increased in both China and the United States over the past 35 years, but it has actually been more rapid in China. And then it um, talks about the new class of wealthy entrepreneurs, while others have been left behind, and so on. So I asked it, um, you know, with all of this, in other words, um, it said that some of, some of these changes in China were due to uh, the growth of the private sector. I also asked it um, what portion of that was due to the undermining of the public sector. So in other words, in the neoliberal era, which China's market reform opening up period exactly coincides with, 1978 into the 80s, neoliberalism, um, re-liberalizing resources and, and markets. Um, where was I now? Been talking for a while here. Um, oh yeah, I asked it. So as we mentioned before, the uh, neoliberal slogan, defund, deregulate, privatize. Well, how much of it was not just growth of the private sector, because if the public sector stayed exactly the same, but the private sector grew, then the overall share of the private sector would increase, but it would leave the public sector untouched. So I was trying to ask it, you know, um, clearly the private sector grew. How much does that growth account for the overall shift in the relationship and percentages between public and private? And how much of that was also cutting the public sector, that defunding 
uh, type of element of neoliberalism. So I also asked it, um, I, so I don't have that answer here, but I did in, in this conversation with it, I asked it if the current growth of the private sector of the Chinese economy continues at recent rates, at what point will the private sector reach 90% of total Chinese economic activity? Can you also answer this question for each of the largest individual areas within the Chinese economy, such as agriculture, manufacturing, and other major areas of economic activity? Here's its answer. According to the National Bureau of Statistics of China, the private sector's share of GDP has been growing steadily in recent years. In 2017, it accounted for 62.1% of GDP, up from 58.9% in 2016. If this trend continues, the private sector is projected to reach 90% of GDP by 2030. So I don't know if it was just using those two years and doing the math off of that, or whether those were just example years, but in any case, and I didn't ask that follow-up, but in any case, that was its estimate, was 90% of the Chinese economy will, will be private sector by 2030. Then the following table on the screen shows the private sector's share of GDP in China by industry as of 2017. Agriculture, 70%. Manufacturing, 82%. Construction, 79%. Wholesale and retail, 90%. Transport, storage, and postal services, 87%. Information technology, 96%. Financial services, 92%. Real estate, 64%. Public administration, social security and social welfare, obviously 1.3%. Education, 13%, yes, so private schools and all that stuff back in the picture in China. Healthcare and social work, 32%, so even a third of that is now private sector. And other services, 39%. It's clear that the private sector is already dominant in many of the largest individual areas within the Chinese economy. In particular, it's almost entirely responsible for economic activity in the IT and financial services sectors. The private sector is also playing an increasingly important role in agriculture, manufacturing, and construction. The continued growth of the private sector is likely to have a significant impact on the Chinese economy in the coming years. It's expected to lead to higher productivity, more innovation, and greater economic growth. I mean, all the other things that capitalists say about it. Anyway, um, let me just look back at this for a second, make sure I'm not leaving any interesting things on the table here before we move on from uh, snippets of my conversation with Bard. Uh, no, I think that's about it. So we'll get back to the main screen here. All right, now I'm going to catch up with chat. That was a long aside, but I think worth it. <clears throat> 